turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24, we actually will be looking at the whole of chapter 24 and then briefly at uh, the first few verses of uh, chapter 25. We won't read all of that. I will read all of chapter 24 um, just so we can have the, the sense of uh, Paul's context once again. Acts chapter 24, hear God's word. And after five days, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. When the governor had nodded to him, Paul, to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem, uh, went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to, and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what, wrongdo say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and 
the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, that is um, encouraging and equipping, encouraging to us and equipping of us uh, to uh, live for Christ in a world that opposes Him. Uh, We pray that you would be at work in this, your word, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Back in the uh, 80s when I was growing up, um, we had this uh, catalog that, uh, this was, you know, before the internet and stuff like that. We had this catalog that uh, came to the house from time to time. I can't for the life of me remember the name of it. Uh, It'll probably come to me sometime this week. I've asked my mom, my brother, so far we haven't. Uh, come up with it. But it had all sorts of odd, interesting, trinkety gadget things. Uh, Not sharper image, not not that kind of thing. Um, But but funny, you know, jokes, gifts, um, things that you could would get people that had far side cartoons or whatever on it. Well, in the catalog, I remember it had this, there was this little round disc, wooden or leather or something kind of brownish like that. And written on it was, uh, were the letters T-U-I-T. Perhaps some of you have seen this. It was a, a round to it. And the point, of course, was to, I guess, presumably order a handful of those. And so that anytime somebody said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of that when I get around to it. You would hand them that little disc and say, well, now you have a round to it. So get started. Some people are just procrastinators. Uh, it's not an excuse. It's not healthy. It's not good. But some people are, by their very nature, procrastinator. Some people put things off. They delay making a decision. They postpone uh, interaction with with facts and evidence, Um, even to their own detriment many times. Felix, the governor here in Acts 24, uh, is procrastinating something that he should not be putting off, and he never gets a round to it. The Sanhedrin, or at least some of them, presumably not all of them, it, it sounds like some elders uh, came with Ananias and not all 70 of members of the Sanhedrin. That would be a, a bit much, I would think, for travel. Uh, they've come down to, they've come to Caesarea to meet with uh, Felix, the governor, to uh, lay their case before him uh, against Paul. And they've brought... Um, Tertullus. They brought a professional. They brought a lawyer, an orator, 
uh, they brought someone along that they've hired to handle uh, speaking before the governor. And you notice there's something about Roman trials that uh, are true for us as well. Uh, things that should sound familiar to you. Look back at verse 35, the very last verse of chapter 23. Uh, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. Look at verse 2 of chapter 24. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, So Paul and Tertullus and Felix are all there in the room together. Look at verse 16 of chapter 25, which is uh, beyond the scope of our sermon text this morning, but verse 16 of chapter 25, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. Uh, these rulers wouldn't even entertain a case, they wouldn't even hear a case against Paul unless Paul had the right, uh, without having accuser and accused, right there in the room. Uh, it's a system that reflects our system, that um, it, it puts the burden of proof on the accuser, on the prosecutor, and not so much on the defender. Uh, it's a trial, not an inquisition. You know, the, an inquisition, of course, says you're guilty and and we're just going to you know, lambast you with, um, with evidence, regardless of whether it's accurate or not. Uh, but here, Paul has the right to be there, to hear the case against him, and to respond, to make a defense for himself. And so look at the prosecution's case in verses 2 through 9. First of all, there's a there's a there's a line between respect and flattery and and that line can be blurry from time to time uh, respect of course has its place in the courtroom we we say your honor and we call him your honor uh, or her your honor uh, regardless of of what they're like out in the rest of the world but because um, the judge sits there on the bench and, and is the judge and it is their courtroom. You treat them with respect like that. You say, Your Honor. To say most excellent Felix is consistent with that kind of honor and respect in uh, the courtroom before um, a governor like Felix. But everything else Tertullus says is false. Everything else he says is a lie. Notice he describes, we enjoy peace, and by your foresight, which is a word that reflects, uh, reflects actually God's care for Israel in the Old Testament. Um, there are reforms being made for this nation, and, and we accept all of this with gratitude. History tells us. We don't even need don't even need the context of, I mean, history alone tells us that, that that's just not the case. That Felix's reign is marked by uprisings, insurgents, um, turmoil, uh, and, and in a lot of ways you can, 
the, the wars that led to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, a lot of that history can be traced and the blame laid squarely at the feet of Felix. For that matter, just look at the end of chapter 24. You saw it just a second ago. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Festus. The reality is the emperor recalled Felix from his post because he was doing such a terrible job. The emperor? Nero. Not exactly the the model of morality and, and godly character. So if Nero would even see fit to finally give up on Felix as a leader, as the governor of this region, Felix is not giving the Israelites peace. He's not bringing care and, and solid reform to the nation of Israel. And for that matter, verses 3 and 4, you almost get the sense that Tertullus knows he has no case. He has nothing to argue before Felix. Think about it a second. Verse 3, not only has he made up everything he said so far, but verse 3, every way, everywhere we accept this. It's generic enough that it can sound true and honest. It's generic enough that... It doesn't really contain any weight or meat or value in it. And for that matter, verse 4, we only need you to listen briefly because we don't have a whole lot to say. We don't have a whole lot to bring to you. So if you would just briefly give us your attention, uh, this will be over quickly because we don't really have much of a case against Paul. He seems to recognize that he has a a weak case. And so instead, he spent half of his speech schmoozing the governor, schmoozing the judge. I'm reminded of the, the preacher who, when someone got a hold of his notes written out in the margin, uh, he had written, weak point, yell louder. What's the case against Paul? What exactly do these Jewish leaders lay before him? What can Tertullus lay at Paul's feet? Well, verses 5 through 8. First, he's a plague against the Jews. stirs up riots everywhere he goes. Uh, Verse 5. Among all the Jews throughout the world... He stirs up riots. Second, he's a ringleader of this sect, this splinter group, this um, heresy movement that he calls the Nazarenes uh, at the end of verse 5. You you know, most Christians at the time, um, in fact, Paul says this down in verse 14, most Christians at the time called themselves the way or followers of the way. It's a reference to Christ saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so they identified with Christ as the way, and they, they, they called themselves the way or followers of the way. Tertullus can only bring 
to his lips, eh, you know, that Nazarene, that, that guy that, that came along a few years back that, that led that group. He won't even refer to Christ by name. He won't call him Jesus or Christ or the way or won't give them any uh, credit whatsoever. He, he calls it a sect of the Nazarenes. In the, in the eyes of these Jewish leaders, Paul isn't leading some subset of Judaism. I mean, let's recognize the Sadducees and the Pharisees are drastically different. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the spirit. They don't believe in angels. The Pharisees believe in all of those things. That's pretty significant. But both can claim to be Jews. They're arguing that the way that Paul and his sect are outside of Judaism. They've gone too far. It's a heresy in their minds. And third, Paul's accused of profaning the temple, but thankfully we caught him before he could cause too much trouble, verse 6 seems to be saying. Of course, Paul was accused of taking a, a Gentile uh, into uh, beyond the court of the Gentiles in the temple itself. So what's at stake here isn't really just Paul. It's Paul, but it's Paul as a representative. It's Paul as a, a representative of the way. This unbelieving Jewish council, they are dead set on getting rid of Paul, but they really want to not just get rid of Paul, but get rid of the church. They want to destroy the sect of the Nazarenes, to use their language. You know, you might be tempted to think, and, and it's true, I suppose, it's it's a growing reality in our world that uh, more and more uh, Christianity is being relegated to a dark corner of society. The, the back room, dark corner, leave it back there where nobody can really see it and it doesn't take much of a, a center stage. It's becoming less and less influential and in our world um, and that, that's certainly true. But you know, the watching world has an eye on the church today. The world is, is keeping watch on Christianity. I, it, it, perhaps even as much today as ever, if, if only to be there if and when the church falls. The church is watching, I mean, the world is watching the church to see how it will reopen and how it will come back from uh, this season of quarantine and come back together again and begin meeting together again. The world wants to catch the church in a snare. It's not content to leave Christ and his people in a dark back corner of some back room. 
It wants it gone. And that's modeled for us right here. These unbelieving Jews have have essentially already found Paul not guilty. Half of the Sanhedrin in the previous chapter said, we don't think he's done anything wrong, at least the Pharisee part of the Jewish council. Presumably, Ananias brought mostly Sadducees with him, but then again, Paul says later, I mean, I'm accused of teaching and and proclaiming a resurrection which these people actually believe. So there are undoubtedly Pharisees there in the mix also. So that's the case. That's the, the argument against Paul. That's the prosecution's case. Notice how Paul responds. And and first of all, I'm struck by a word in verse uh, 10 that I wonder how many of us in the same position could use. I'm not sure how many of us would actually use the word cheerfully in verse 10. He's been arrested. He's been falsely accused. He's been beaten up. He's been shipped off from Jerusalem to Caesarea. He's been held uh, and nearly flogged. He's held as a Roman with rights of a Roman citizen. He's held contrary to the, the existence of any real accusation against him. And now he cheerfully makes his defense. Why can Paul say that? Why can Paul say, I I cheerfully stand here before you today and make my defense and, and, and make my not guilty claim? Because I think Paul knows he's not the one on trial. I think Paul recognizes this isn't about me, Paul, but it's about Christ. And it's, it's the gospel that's on trial. He doesn't, he doesn't have to actually be guilty of the things that he's charged with in order to stand trial. He's not hated because he's guilty. He's actually hated because he's holy. I'm not, I don't mean he's sinless. We've done this already, right? Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Nobody's ascribing to Paul that level of, of sinlessness. But he does. He cares deeply for the truth of Scripture. He cares deeply for the honor and glory of Christ. He loves the church. And he has, verse 16, always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. That is essentially what holiness is. R.C. Sproul tells a story of um, a professional golfer who got to play with uh, in, a, in a foursome with Jack Nicholas, which the golfer had done numerous times. That didn't matter to him. Then President Gerald Ford and Billy Graham... And at the end of a round, at the end of that that round of golf, another friend asked this professional golfer, and I think Sproul used his name, I couldn't remember it, and I didn't look it up, but um, asked how the, the round went, and the golfer 
lined up cuss words like planes landing at Atlanta airport. And then he said this, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing his religion down my throat. And as he kind of stormed off to the practice tee just to hit some balls, his friend followed him and said, was he rough on you out there? And the golfer said, actually, he didn't say anything at all. I just had a bad round. Sproul goes on to point out that the reason that golfer could accuse Billy Graham of stuffing his religion down his throat, even though Billy Graham didn't say anything about Christ or religion or the Bible or God, it's because Billy Graham is so associated with Jesus, with godliness, that his presence alone was smothering enough to this gospel. You know, the truth is, holiness in our lives will provoke hatred. It's Christ in Paul on trial here in Acts 24. Now, don't go seeking trouble. Don't go out and, and just be mean and be a jerk to people and, and sort of claim, well, look, I was persecuted and put on trial because of Jesus. No, nah, it's because you were just mean. But we really should count it joy when we face trials of these kinds because these trials are producing in us our sanctification. They produce in us perseverance. But they also are an indication that the unbelieving world thought us reasonable representatives enough of Christ and His church that we were worth persecuting. Look at Paul's defense, verses 10 to 21. Was he defaming the temple? Well, actually, no. When he was there um, in the temple, it was because he was there uh, for, for purifying himself. For one thing, it's only been 12 days since, since I got to Israel and was in the temple. Um, and so, not really a whole lot of time to be causing riots and trouble and conflict in Jerusalem when it was just 12 days ago. And some of those I've spent here or traveling here. Um, and so, I mean, just 12 days ago, I was in the temple um, and, and was not arguing with anybody. And for that matter, was there for purification purposes. That's not, that's not defaming the, perp, the, the temple. Um, that's not hating the temple, uh, and it's not causing riots. For that matter, uh, riots. Well, I mean, again, I was in the temple just 12 days ago, and they didn't find me. I wasn't even talking to anybody. I wasn't arguing with anybody. I wasn't disputing with anybody. Somebody lobbed an accusation at me in such a way that got the crowds stirred up. And for that matter, verse 17, I was actually in Jerusalem to bring alms, to bring gifts from churches all around the Mediterranean who had taken up a collection to send back to Jerusalem where there were Jewish Christians in poverty. 
these believers in around the Mediterranean cared enough about believers they'd never met before that they would actually send money to support these brothers and sisters in Christ, but who were in need. That's a peace mission. That's not a riot mission. He was there to help. He wasn't there to cause trouble. Oh, and, and this whole ringleader of the Nazarene thing. Notice, you know, again, Paul, verse 14, uses the, the term, the way. He doesn't use, then he says, but they call it a sect. These people call it a heretical splinter group, but the reality is it's, it's the way. We're following Christ. But notice how Paul describes Christianity. He's not denying the Old Testament. He's not straying from the truths of the Old Testament. He's not denying the law or the prophets. In fact, he says, I worship the God of our fathers. Believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets. I'm not saying the law and the prophets are false or wrong, or I'm not denying them at all. I'm, I'm worshiping the one true God of the Bible. He says, look, I'm not separating myself from Judaism. I'm actually identifying with you and believe everything that the law and the prophets said because they were pointing to Jesus. They weren't creating a religion of law, of, of legal standing before God. The law and the prophets point to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, he contends, the Old Testament actually teaches a resurrection of the dead. And in fact, some of these very people have already said, yeah, we agree with that too. That's exactly what we believe. You know, there's, there's an oddity actually um, in our world today and, and, and a reality, I think, that, that many evangelical Christians today would find shocking if they actually kind of took the time to think about it. But... Um, Modern so-called scholarship and, and most of evangelical Christianity actually agree on something. And by modern scholar, I mean modern liberal public university scholarship and modern evangelical Christianity actually agree on something. And that is that the Old Testament and the New Testament teach something drastically different. The old is about being saved by law, and it's about this nation of Israel. The New Testament is about church and grace. And the implication, of course, is that God changes from one to the other. That the way of salvation changes from one to to the other. Paul actually is denying that teaching here. Now, th that teaching didn't exist yet. I mean, that, 
that wasn't going on. In fact, it won't really come to fruition for another 1,800 years or so. But, but the point is, Paul's defense here in Acts 24 sets a groundwork that in order to reach the conclusion that the Old Testament and the New Testament are that drastically different, the people of God changes, the way of salvation changes, you have to say that Paul is wrong here. You have to say that Paul misunderstands the Bible. And Paul's saying, look, the Old Testament anticipates Christ. And he sees, Paul sees the connection that, the, that these Jewish leaders don't. I've, I've said before, it may have been, I can't remember, I feel like it's been in the last couple of weeks in one of some either sermon or a Zoom conversation or something, the new is in the old concealed, meaning the, the New Testament is actually, is there in the Old Testament despite being sort of concealed and veiled. And the old is in the new revealed. I even had a an Old Testament professor, Ralph Davis, some of you will know that name, who uh, half tongue-in-cheek calls, or at least did, called the New Testament uh, the appendix. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why we at Grace Covenant, um, we preach through books of the Bible. We, we do that um, for a variety of reasons that don't matter here. But this right here is one of the reasons we typically bounce back and forth from Old to New Testament. It's all one story of God's grace, and we want to see that from every possible angle. We want to turn that diamond and look at every single face available to us. And that's what Paul's doing here. I agree. I believe everything laid down in the Law and the Prophets because they are pointing to Jesus and these guys are missing that. And so Paul makes the trial not about himself, but about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prosecution, the defense, but notice both judge and jury. Um, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, um, Felix is familiar with the way, he has an accurate knowledge of the way. Luke doesn't tell us exactly how that is, Perhaps it's because Drusilla, verse 24, is Jewish. Um, she's more than that. Her brother actually is Agrippa in the next chapter. Um, her uh, father uh, put um, James, the brother of John, to death earlier in Acts and, and died a rather gruesome death in Acts 12. Her grandfather killed all of those babies at the time Jesus was born. And Felix hears the case and hears Paul's response. And his answer is, I'm just going to kick the can down the road a little bit. Notice he put them off, verse 22. He decided to wait for Claudius Lysias to come uh, before he would interact. And so Paul is confined, yes, not in a cell. He's got some freedom. He's able to see his friends. And for Two years this went on. They heard Paul preach. 
they invited him back. You get the impression, verses 24 to 27, that there was sort of a regular event, that there was some, some regularity to Felix and Drusilla hearing Paul come and, and preach the gospel to them. Felix, Felix, of course, really was hoping he would just pay him a bribe. If you just give me some, if I keep inviting you back, surely you'll get the, the notion sooner or later. I, maybe, maybe Paul didn't have any money. Paul wasn't going to pay for a bribe, but wasn't going to pay for his freedom. But it reminds me a little bit of Peter and John back earlier in Acts when they healed the lame man outside of the temple. He was asking for money. He was asking for alms. And they said, we don't have money. But what we do have, we will give you. And they ultimately gave him Christ. Paul's not giving Felix money, but he is giving Felix what he does have. He's reasoning about what he's speaking about faith in Christ Jesus, verse 24. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, all of which, by the way, would have stepped on Felix and Drusilla's toes. You see, this is Drusilla's technically third husband. And it was because Felix had basically bribed her away from uh, her second husband, She's Jewish. He's not. Technically, she's not supposed to marry according to Old Testament law. She's not supposed to marry him. And so you can imagine righteousness, self-control, judgment. Paul's touching on the very issues that will sort of pick at the scab uh, that Felix knows he has, all with the hope of applying the balm of the gospel of Jesus Christ to it. Two whole years. If you were left there for two years and invited back over and over and over again before the exact same people and asked the exact kinds of same questions, I wonder how long it would take me, I wonder how long it would take some of us to get frustrated and just to throw our hands up in the air and say, you know what, this is a lost cause. This person's clearly never going to believe the gospel, and so it's really a waste of my time. Paul, for two years, and it sounds like there was regularity in it, never shied away from proclaiming Christ. I sort of feel like Paul probably knew that his preaching was going nowhere with Felix. Silver and gold he doesn't have, but he does have Christ. And he would not shy away, he would not back down from proclaiming Christ. Even Felix's replacement, Festus, heard the case with relative speed, but then was more interested in appeasing the Jews than he was uh, in actually dealing with the case or um, letting Paul go. Finds him innocent. But 
Paul appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to the highest court of the land. But Festus cared more about his political savvy, his political clout with the Jews. And that seems to be a theme between these leaders. Men who had gotten to where they are through decisiveness, through action, through uh, dependable determination, um, refused to make a decision in terms of Paul. And it, it's not that they just didn't make a, decide about, make a decision about Paul's guilt or innocence. They actually never got around to it. They never, they just kept kicking the can down the road. A decision on the gospel. I think they realized the Jews had no case against Paul, and so they knew Paul was innocent. But that's a much lesser matter before both Felix and Festus. The larger matter, the weightier matter is they heard the gospel and delayed in responding to it. Let me encourage you. The time to repent and believe the gospel is not tomorrow. It's not later. It's not two years down the road. It's not a can you can kick on down the road and decide much later. I have distinct, vivid memories of conversations with teenagers uh, during my student ministry days, uh, giving guys rides home, asking, you know, so so what do you think about the things we're teaching? I, you know, I think it's good. I, I kind of agree with, but I mean, I'm just kids, you know. I mean, I, I'm 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 a teenager. I'm just kind of doing my thing, and I'll kind of come back to the church later. You're not promised tomorrow. You may not have tomorrow. So turn in faith to Christ while you still have today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we uh, thank you for uh, the gospel that urges a response, that urges us to, um, to turn in faith to Christ or to continue in our sin and our wickedness and our selfishness and to reject that gospel message. Would you stir hearts even now to, to turn to Christ, to believe in Christ as the only Savior of sinners, as the one whose holy and righteous life stands as, um, as ours, as credited to us, um, and whose death suffered because of our sin, pays for, atones for our wickedness. And Father, we pray that you would be with us, even as you promised Paul. You, you said you were, you were there with Paul. You promised he would make it to Rome. Father, would you be with us? That in times of trial, you would give us the words to say, and that Christ would be exalted. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. 
Amen.